hands and uh, we're going to have our reading. This morning's reading is from Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Peace and joy. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that sufferings produce perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John, for that reading. Got you working this morning. I want to uh, invite Ursula up to speak to us now, and I want to pray for her and encourage you to carry on praying for Ursula as she begins this month her training for ordination. So do hold her in your thoughts and prayers, but allow me to pray for her now before she speaks. Father God, I do thank you for Ursula, for her gifts and her ministry here. And I pray now that you would empower her as she shares your word with us. Speak through her, we pray, so that we may be encouraged and challenged and may draw closer to you. Amen. Good morning. Have I got that in the right place? Thank you. Um, When I saw the title of the talk, my first reaction was to phone Tim and say, "Um, no, thank you. (laughs) I'll have something a little bit more cheerful, please. (laughs) Um, But then I never got round to doing that. (laughs) In his um, preface to his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther writes, this epistle represents the fundamental teachings of the New Testament. And it's the purest gospel, well worthwhile not only to be memorized verbatim, but also so to be used daily by every Christian as the daily bread of his soul. For no one could ever exhaust this epistle by study and meditation. The better one becomes acquainted with it, the higher one will treasure it and all the more delight in it. And I have to say, over this past couple of weeks, as I've studied this passage, 
I can testify that that's true. The better I've become acquainted with it, the more I see the treasures of this passage. And it's a difficult passage, isn't it? It challenges us. It talks of suffering and the place of suffering in our lives as we journey through life. Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He isn't talking here about the peace of God, which he refers to in Philippians 4.7, but of peace with God. Peace with God that flows out from our reconciliation with God. We enjoy peace with God because our sins have been forgiven and our guilt is gone. The blessing of peace of heart and mind flow from that peace of reconciliation. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 20 that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. To have peace with God, to be reconciled with him, we must come to Christ, trust in what he did at the cross, and we will be forgiven and have peace with him. Following on from this reconciliation, we gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. One of my favorite series of books are the Narnia stories by C.S. Lewis. In the last book of the series, The Last Battle, Lewis describes the end of Narnia and how everyone has to pass through a stable to reach a new Narnia, a heavenly Narnia. The dwarves refuse to pass through the stable as they cower in the darkness of a collapsing society. Aslan, who figuratively is Jesus in the story, tells us that their prison is only in their own minds, and yet they are in that prison. They are so afraid of being taken in by the offer of new life that they cannot be taken out of their present darkness. But for us today, because of the birth of Jesus in a stable and his death and resurrection some 33 years later, we have been given access to go through that doorway. Given the opportunity to go through the doorway that leads us into the grace of God, into a new kind of relationship with God, of peace, hope, love, forgiveness, friendship with God. We stand looking at the open door, hearing that it leads to God and his grace and blessing, and what do we do? Do we cower in the darkness? Would we rather stay imprisoned by our thoughts and fears, by our ambitions, by the daily trials of our lives, or do we accept the invitation to enter into a new and deeper relationship with our Heavenly Father? The gospel isn't about people living a life of sweetness and light. It's not about a life spent ignoring the pain of ourselves or others. But neither is it about wearing sackcloth and ashes and walking around crying, woe is me. The gospel is about the grace of God touching our lives, touching lives that are real, that are sometimes messy, sometimes difficult, sometimes exhilarating sometimes lonely, sometimes fulfilling, and oftentimes mundane. It's about touching us as we live day by day, 
bringing us the blessing and reality of his presence every minute of each day. The opening verses of chapter 5 speak three times of a word which means exaltation and rejoicing. We translate it as glory. It means that we have songs to sing and a name to name. In verse 2 it says, We boast in the hope of the glory of God. In verse 3 it says, We glory in our sufferings. And in verse 11, We glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The original word, used before some of its nuance was lost in translation, means not only the emotion of joy, but also the confident expression of it in speech, of boasting. At the heart of the word, it just means to declare ourselves, to speak of something that matters to us, to take a stand, to speak up, to announce who we are and what we stand for openly and clearly and loudly. So what is it that we as Christians can glory in, rejoice about? Firstly, in verse 2, in the hope of the glory of God. As Titus 2.13 says, we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But more difficult for us is that Paul also says in verse 3, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Paul was a realist. He wasn't so absorbed in the glory of the future that he closed his eyes to the realities of the present. And Jesus warned us, didn't he, in John 16:33, that in this world we will have tribulation. The Greek word translated tribulations originally conveys the idea of, of pressing together, of pressure. And we experience some of those pressures, don't we? Sickness loss, excessive demands, persecution. When most people are squeezed, pressured, stressed by these things, what is on the inside will come out. For some, what comes out is violence, bad language, abusive behavior. For others, the stresses are internalized. We hold on to them instead of letting them out internalized into depression or fear or even illness. But when as Christians we face the troubles life brings us, we can face them with honesty. In this life we will have trouble. Things break down, we break down. We become ill, we lose our jobs, we get angry, we suffer persecution or torment. Yet the apostle says we rejoice in our suffering. He's not saying that we like pain, as if we were masochists. He is saying that we recognize as Christians that God, who is sovereign over our lives, will use our suffering for a purpose. And it is in that purpose that we can rejoice. When finally my marriage broke down, just a few days after Ray left, I was telling a Christian friend what happened and asked her to pray. Her prayer and counsel were that I should rejoice because God would use the experience in the future. I must say, I didn't feel very much like rejoicing. 
I didn't find her counsel very helpful or encouraging, and I didn't think I'd be going to her for prayer again. (laughs) I was grieving the loss of a relationship that had lasted over 30 years, the loss of my hopes and expectations for the future. Deep within, though, somewhere, in a kernel, I recognize that I did have joy, that I did rejoice, that I could mine somewhere from deep within a joy that I knew that my relationship with God through Christ was secure, despite of what was happening. And I was secure because of the enormity of his saving love for me. We can glory in the insurance that our sufferings will deepen our relationship with him. But I still had to face the tumult of emotions that came with a marriage breakdown. And I don't believe that God asked me to glory in the breakdown of my marriage, but rather wept and grieved with me. And as I prayed and reflected on the counsel she gave, I have concluded that yes, we can always rejoice in the saving work of Jesus, no matter what awful events surround us. And yes, God will use everything we experience for his purposes, but we can be honest with ourselves and each other and with God. This passage doesn't ask that we glory in our circumstances, but that we trust in him. That we seek that place of deep security and faith in God as life storms around us, rejoicing that he will work for good in our lives, even through suffering. We have a compassionate God who understands us and who knows us even better than we know ourselves. So when we as Christians are put under pressure, what comes out of us? When olives are crushed, put under pressure, oil comes out. When grapes are crushed, wine comes out. What comes out of us when we're put under pressure? Moving on in the passage, Paul lists three outcomes of tribulation and pressure in a believer's life. Firstly, Paul says in verse 3, perseverance. When my um, son was small, a favorite chorus in church was the wise man built his house upon the rock. Uh, you probably know it. It's based on the parable of the wise and foolish builders in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. A favorite part of the little boys was at the end where the house comes tumbling down and they all used to try to push each other over to demonstrate the foolishness of poor foundations. I think really it was just an excuse for a scrap in church. (laughs) But there's a serious point here. Do we really know if we're built on firm foundations? If the foundations of our faith are firm and less trouble strikes? Or are we just fair weather Christians? Do we fall over? Do we not have the foundations when trouble strikes? Is our house, our faith built on rock or on sand? Hudson Taylor, the missionary doctor working in China at the end of the 19th century said, 
At the timberline where the storms strike with the most fury, the sturdiest trees are found. Secondly, in verse 4, Paul names character. Literally, the word means the experience of being tested and approved. If when trials come, we persevere in devotion to Christ and don't turn against him, then we come out of that experience with a stronger sense that we have a real, authentic faith. We used to sing the chorus here quite a lot, refine as fire. It says, purify my heart, let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart, let me be as gold. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you. Lord, I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. I've wondered over the years as I've sung that song, am I really willing to enjoy troubles and trials? Am I willing to endure the trials of refining or am I just fooling myself, getting caught up in the emotion of the experience, the emotion of the song? But God sees our hearts and takes us at our word. Are we willing to be refined for him to develop our characters? As a word of encouragement to us, 1 Corinthians 1.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. When the substance of our faith is put into the fire, does it come out refined as gold, or is it consumed as ashes? The third attribute, which comes from this sense of being tested, of pressured, of being approved and refined, is in the second part of verse 4, and it's hope. Reflected from verse 2, where Paul says, We exult in the hope of the glory of God. Our Christian life begins with hope in the promises of God in the gospel. I've noticed that often the people who know God best are the ones who suffer with Christ. The people who have been tested most deeply understand the depth of his hope more, most clearly. But as Thomas Merton, the American theologian, says, the truth that many people never understand until it is too late is the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt. Life can be hard. We can struggle to forgive those who hurt us. Troubles can diminish us. But although the trials and tribulations of life may contribute to the shaping of our characters, they don't have to define who we are. They don't have to keep us bound or fearful. And for those who experience each trial as an added burden, bringing them a little lower as each new load is added, then there is hope. 
because as we have read in this passage, Jesus died for each one of us on the cross to reconcile us to God, our Heavenly Father, so that we can experience his forgiveness and his healing, his freedom. We don't have to struggle on alone anymore. And as we trust God within the suffering, within the difficult circumstances or with painful memories, we become people of faith, we persevere, our characters are shaped by him, and finally that leads to hope. The whole process of facing this world as it really is and trusting God in the midst of real life, in drawing on his strength and growing in faith leads us again to look forward to his promise to us of eternal life with him. A few years ago, or many years ago now, I, I read a lot of Watchman Nee. His books were deeply formative at that time in moving me on in my Christian walk. Here he describes meeting a Christian who faced suffering. The breaking of the alabaster box and the anointing of the Lord filled the house with the odour, the sweetest odour. Everyone could smell it. Whenever you meet someone who has really suffered, been limited, gone through things for the Lord, has been willing to be imprisoned for the Lord, just being satisfied with him and nothing else, immediately you sense, you scent the fragrance. There is the savour of the Lord. Something has been crushed. Something has been broken. And there is the resulting odour of sweetness. There are elements of the love of God that we can't do anything but experience. Although we attempt to sing or speak of it or read of it in the Psalms. As Paul says in our passage, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We have the fragrance of Jesus within us. And going back to Luther where we started, John Wesley records in his journal in 1738, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, London where someone was reading Luther's preface to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone, for salvation and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I began to pray with all my might for those who had, in a more special manner, despitefully used me and who had persecuted me. Then I testified openly to all there what I now felt for the first time in my heart. As Romans says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But when God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it is because of this that we can trust him with all that happens in our lives. Amen. Oh.